Welcome everybody to week three of One Big Story. This journey that we're taking together as a church family through the pages of the Bible. Now for those of you who are maybe new or you've just been out for the last couple of weeks, there's two things we're trying to do in this series and this study. One is just to help us all get a better understanding of the Bible, right? Whether you're new to this whole church and the Bible thing, or whether you've been a student and studying the Bible, grew up in church, we can all get a better understanding of God's Word. So to help us do that, we're doing like a 30,000-foot overview of the Bible. We're looking at what is known as the meta-narrative of Scripture, which is just a fancy way of saying that the Bible is one big story. It is God's story. It's not just a random collection of ancient stories about God, but it is the story of God. From Genesis to Revelation, the Bible tells one big story with one consistent theme, and that is God's redemptive love, His passionate pursuit of prodigal people like me and like you. But there's a second goal we're trying to accomplish, more than just understanding God's story. More importantly, we're looking at how to find our place in God's story, because we've all got a place in God's story. You, you understand that God's story didn't end when the last words were written on the last page of the Bible. And being a part of God's story is not just limited to those people who lived thousands of years ago who got their name in the Bible, God is continuing to write his story, not only across the pages of human history, but he's writing them across the pages of our individual lives. And while that truth can be found throughout Scripture, I think one of the places that that is most clearly articulated in the Bible are these words from the Apostle Paul from the New Testament book of Acts, Acts 17. Notice what Paul says. He says, the God who made the world and everything in it, is the Lord of heaven and earth. Now, what does that mean? See, Paul wants us to understand that God is just not some cosmic creative force who created everything and then sits back and watches it unwind. He wants us to understand that God continues to be the Lord of heaven and earth. He's actively engaged in everything and in everyone around us. In fact, Paul goes on to say, he, talking about God, he himself gives everyone, that includes all of us, life and breath and everything else. And then don't miss this last line, for in him, in God's story, we live and move and have our being. In other words, you were created on purpose for a purpose. And that purpose is found in being a part of God's one big story. So last week, we kind of took our first step into God's story by looking at the creation narrative, these amazing uh, verses from the first two chapters of the book of Genesis, and, and we saw how God through creation reveals some things about Himself to us, and He reveals some things about us to us. And so if you missed last week, I really encourage you to go back and uh, dig into that, watch that message, a lot of good information. But today we're moving on in the story, and we find ourselves coming to the first big plot twist in God's story. Because you remember when we left off last week, things were good. In fact, they were better than good. They're, they were perfect. 
God had created this perfect creation, this utopia, this garden of Eden, and then he created man and woman, and he invited them into his story, and he gave them some jobs, some good work to do. He created them in his image so that they could reflect his glory to the world around him. He had given them the job of manager or stewards of all creation, and he also gave them a third job that I didn't talk about last week, and their third job was, get it, be fruitful and multiply, which is pretty good work if you can get it. Now, everything is good, and so the $64,000 question is, what happened, right? Because we are not in Eden anymore. You need to only turn on the television or scroll through your Facebook feed to see things have gotten broken. We are broken people living in a broken world. What happened? The answer, Genesis chapter 3 is what happened. Theologians call it the fall of man. We know it more commonly as the story of Adam and Eve and the very bad apple. And most of us know this story from childhood. And most of us tend to look at this story as sort of like a fairy tale right? Like Adam and Eve are frolicking in the garden, and everything's beautiful and wonderful, and then a mean old nasty snake comes by and tricks them into eating the forbidden fruit, and then God finds out about it, and he's so mad that he throws them out of the garden and sentences them to a life of pain and struggle and toil that will ultimately end in death. And we say, well, the moral of the story is stay away from snakes and don't eat forbidden fruit. But when you really understand, when you get a more adult, deeper understanding of what happens in this part of God's story, it is transformative. When we oversimplify what happened in Genesis chapter 3, we miss what I think might be one of the most important chapters of the entire Bible. And I say that because in this chapter, in this part of God's story, we discover answers to some of life's biggest questions. Questions about God, questions about ourselves, and questions about the suffering and struggle and brokenness of this world we live in. So here's what I want to do today. Over the next few minutes, I want to peel back the fairy tale layer and get some true deep insights from the fall. Three key lessons from Genesis chapter 3. You may want to write these down. The first insight we get from Genesis chapter 3 is that we get a clearer view of God. Genesis chapter 3 helps me develop an adult understanding of God. You know, last week we discovered in creation that God is powerful that he spoke everything into existence, that God is sovereign and in control. And then secondly, we learned that God was good because everything God created was good. That's why when we were kids, we were taught to pray, God is great and God is, and let us thank him for our, right? And that when you're a kid, that's plenty of faith. That's all you need to trust that God is great and God is good. But at some point, you grow up enough when that simple understanding of a great and good God runs smack dab into the reality of human suffering and pain. 
And it causes us to wonder, how can God be great and good? Because if God is good and He is great, then why doesn't He do something about all the pain and brokenness? And we wonder, well, maybe if God is good, He must not be great. Maybe He's just like us. He just wishes things were different, but He has no power to change it. And we run into the question that all of us must wrestle with, and that is, how can a loving, all-powerful, good God exist when human suffering exists as well? And I believe part of the answer, not all of it, part of the answer to that question is found in the events of Genesis chapter 3. Because when God put Adam and Eve in the garden, He also put in that same garden two important trees, and he gave Adam and Eve one important rule. For those of you who think God is just a big rule maker, and he's obsessed with rules and boundaries and and all of this, when God had the world the way he wanted it, there was only one rule. Because there was only one thing we needed to be protected from. Because see, one of the trees that God had placed in the garden was known as the tree of life, sometimes called the tree of eternal life. The second tree, which was the tree God placed in the middle of the garden, was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it was that tree that we needed to be protected from. And so this is the rule, this is the boundary that God placed. It's found in Genesis 2, beginning with verse 16. It says, and the Lord God commanded the man, that's Adam, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat it, you will certainly what? What did they do? Ate it. What happened? They died. What does that tell me about God? That God is just. That God is a just God. That the brokenness, the pain, and the struggles we see in life are the direct result of our rebellion against a loving and just God. And you say, whoa, 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 wait a minute, Philip. Why am I being punished for what Adam and Eve did? I wasn't in the garden. I didn't eat. I understand God bring the hammer down on Adam and Eve, but why do I have to live with the consequences? Here's why. Because there is not a one of us here today who hasn't taken a bite out of the forbidden fruit. There's not a one of us can claim that we've never crossed boundaries that God had set in order to get what we think we needed, to be who we think we ought to be, to choose to try to be God instead of trusting God's justice and love. Of course, the second question is, okay, Why do there have to be consequences? Why couldn't God just fix it? Why couldn't he just forgive us and put everything back aright? Here's why. God is good because he is just. And if God ever fails to be just, he is no longer good. Give you an example. You ever been in the grocery store, been in the Walmart, and there's a parent there with two kids, and they are just letting those kids run buck wild. 
They're pulling stuff off the shelf. They're, break, they're making everything, everybody's life in the store miserable. And the parent is just oblivious. They never say anything. They never do anything. There are no consequences for those behaviors. Do you look at that parent and go, oh, they are a good parent. They must really love their children. No, that's not what you say. You say, what's wrong with it? Why don't they love their children? Right? Because justice, rightness that you can count on, is stabilizing. It's something we all need. Now, the other question, and I think this is a legitimate question, why did God put the tree in the garden in the first place? Why did God even allow the potential for rebellion? Well, here's what I believe the answer is, and the answer is love. His love for us, because God created us to be in a loving intimate relationship with him. Just like we saw last week, God created human beings in his image. Nothing else in creation is created in his image. And that was not just to reflect his glory, but it was also to be able to be in a relationship with him. And a loving, intimate relationship requires the ability to willingly either choose it or reject it. Notice again verse 16 what God says to Adam. You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, including the one that's going to harm you. That freedom to choose, even to make the wrong choice, is the essence of love. Let me see if I can connect the dots with you. Terry and I started dating when we were in high school, right? And we, went, we dated all through college. We actually went to separate colleges on different ends of the state. And we dated all the way through college. And shortly after graduating from college, we got married. But about two years into my college career, when I was a sophomore in college, Terry broke up with me on the phone. Right? She called, broke up with me. And let me tell you something. I was devastated, right? Because I had not been in very many relationships until she and I met. And so I just it crushed me. It broke. I was all tore up about it. I was mad. I was hurt. I was all that. Some of my buddies from college, and this is dangerous. Those of you that go off to college, it's dangerous for your buddies in college to try to help you through a hard time. So they were trying to comfort me and help me. And one of my friends quoted to me, that stupid poem that shows up on a poster with the picture of the butterfly. You know the one I'm talking about? If you love something, set it free. If it comes back, it's yours. If it doesn't, it never was. And I was like, shut up, dude. I don't want to hear that. I want her back. I want her back. I don't care if I have to force her. I don't care if she doesn't want to come back. I want her back. But here's the thing, standing in front of you today and looking back over 30, nearly 38 years of marriage, I'm so thankful to know that she willingly chose to be in this relationship with me. And I believe that is exactly what God desires for us. I believe we can see God's love for us and the freedom that he gives us. But let me say this. This answer, this issue of suffering, and this truth, it will never be emotionally satisfying for you. 
You're not going to walk out of here today, see human trials and suffering, go, oh, but it's okay. It's what is needed for us to love God. No, it's never going to emotionally satisfy you. You are always going to struggle with pain and suffering. You're never going to be okay with it. You know why? You're not supposed to be okay with it. You were created in God's image. And the reason suffering and pain of others and yourself bothers you so much is because it bothers God so much. The reason it breaks your heart is because it breaks God's heart. And so the question that we need to wrestle with today is, how am I going to respond to the brokenness and pain around me? And am I going to reflect God's love by moving towards the pain and not away? Am I going to reflect God's love by running after the hurting? Am I going to reflect God's justice by using my voice and influence to stand up for those who have no voice and have no influence? Yes, you can keep standing and shaking your fist and mad at God about the way he's writing his story, Or you can live out your place in his story by getting your hands dirty in the brokenness and pain that is all around us. We we look up to heaven and we say, come on, God, do something about it. Why don't you do something about all of this brokenness? And I think God looks back at us and says, why don't you? I created you in my image. I gave you my heart. I've given you my power, my spirit, and my authority. You see what I mean? How this going a little deeper than the fairy tale gives us some more adult understanding, a deeper understanding of who God is. There's a a second thing we learn from uh, Genesis chapter 3, and that is not only do I get a better understanding of God, but I get a better understanding of me. I get a better understanding of me. Reading Genesis chapter 3, if you're honest, is like looking in a mirror. Because when I read it, you know what I see? The same pattern of Adam and Eve's rebellion against God looks an awful lot like my own rebellion against God. Now look, we don't know how long Adam and Eve are in the garden before things get broken. This could have happened weeks into the story, months, years, decades, centuries, millennia. We don't know how much time passes between Genesis 2 and Genesis 3. All that we know is at some point, Eve has a run-in with a snake. Now, interestingly, there is nothing in the book of Genesis to indicate that the snake is Satan or that the snake represents Satan. That's not in Genesis. You have to get all the way to the New Testament where Paul unpacks that either, it's not clear based on how he wrote, either the Satan is in the snake, controlling the snake, or Satan is actually the snake itself. It's not clear, but it doesn't really matter. All we know is the snake shows up and Eve and the snake have a conversation. And that conversation, the first thing it shows me about me is that deception leads me to doubt God. That deception is what leads me to doubt God. Notice the conversation starts in Genesis 3, verse 1. It says, one day the snake said to the woman, did God really say that you must not eat fruit from any tree 
in the garden? Paul's right there. What's happening? It's deception, right? Satan is twisting what God said. And it works. Because Eve ends up confused. Look at the rest of the conversation. Eve answers back, no, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God told us you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. And then look, Eve goes on to say, you must not even touch it or you will die. Did God say you can't touch the fruit from this tree? No. Eve's adding to the story. She is now confused about what God really said. And in that fog of confusion, the snake moves in for the kill. Notice, but the snake said to the woman, you will not die. God knows that if you eat the fruit of that tree, you will learn about good and evil, and you will be like God. Do you know what the most effective lie is? A lie that has partial truth in it. And and that's what the snake is doing. He's playing a game of two truths and a lie. It is true that if they eat this fruit, they will know the difference between good and evil. And it is also true if they eat this fruit, they will become like God. What is not true is that they will not die. And I think if we're honest, some of us are right there right now. We are looking at all the things that God has given us, but we're thinking, you know what? He's not given me everything. He's not answered this prayer. He hasn't healed this illness, right? He hasn't provided this miracle. Maybe he's not really as good as I thought he was. God's holding out on me. God's keeping something from me. And that doubt, when it starts to creep in, becomes a problem. And here's why. Because my doubts lead to disobedience. My doubts lead to disobedience. When I doubt that God really is good and that he really wants the best for me, then I start to go outside of his loving and protecting boundaries to get what I think I need to be my own God. And that, friends, is the heart of rebellion. That is the heart of all the sin and brokenness in our lives and in the world around us. Notice verse 6. It says, the woman was convinced. She was convinced God was holding out. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. And then she gave some to her husband who was with her. You ever noticed that before? Adam's right there the whole time Eve's having the conversation with a snake. He's right there just doing what men do, standing around with his hands in his pockets, doing nothing. Not much has changed, has it, ladies? Right? So guys, when you get tempted to blame the women and blame Eve, just understand you were right there. In fact, you don't know this, many of you don't. When God gave the command, the rule about not eating from the fruit from this tree, Eve had not even been created. That God gave Adam this boundary, this protective boundary, before he put Adam to sleep and took the rib from his side. God clearly placed the responsibility on Adam's shoulders to provide and to protect and communicate God's law to his wife. But look, bottom line is, they both took a bite. And when they did, 
It took a bite out of them. And all of us carry the scars of that rebellion. And the biggest scar of all is this, that my disobedience leads to disconnection. My disobedience leads to disconnection. It disconnects me not only from God, but it disconnects me from other people. Look at verse 7. At that moment, their eyes, Adam and Eve's eyes were open, and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. And so they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. You understand, up until this point, Adam and Eve had perfect intimacy with one another. Their differences didn't divide them. Their differences united them in intimacy. Nothing was between them. But now, something has come between them. And we continue to struggle with that division even today. Not just in our marriages, but in all of our human relationships. This is why it's hard for you to truly connect and trust other people. This is why it's so hard for you to be transparent and open up with others. This is the reason people get on your nerves and the reason that you get on other people's nerves because we have been divided from each other. But not only does it disconnect us from each other, it disconnects us from God. Look at verse 8. It says, When the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. And so they hid from the Lord God among the trees. I love this imagery. Can you picture this in your mind? God physically present walking through the garden in the cool of the evening. See, up until this point, there was nothing that separated Adam and Eve from God. They had this perfect, intimate relationship, this connection, but now their desire to be God had separated them from God. And instead of running to him in their brokenness, they hid from him in the bushes. And ain't that just like us? When we blow it, when we mess up, when we fail, we feel all of this shame and guilt, and we hold God at arm's length. It's when we stop reading the Bible, we stop going to home groups, stop going to church, stop doing anything. And that's exactly what Adam and Eve did. But listen, listen, listen. Don't miss this. This is so cool. This is the most amazing part, not only this part of God's story, but I think this is the most amazing thing that the Bible tells us about God. When they're hiding in the bushes full of shame, God comes looking for them. You read the rest of the verses. It says God's walking through the garden. He's saying, Adam, where are you? Adam, where are you? Now, I've told you before, anytime God asks a question, it's not for his benefit. God has no questions that he doesn't have answers for. And so when God asks a question, it is for our benefit. There's something he wants us to know. So God doesn't say, Adam, where are you? Because Adam is a world champion hide-and-seek player. It's because he wants Adam to recognize, where are you in your heart? He's looking for him. See, this is the difference between the God of the Bible and the God of every other religion. 
Because every other religion is about me making up for my mistakes, to fix myself so that I can be good enough to come out of hiding and come to God. But the God of this one big story is the God who comes looking from apple-eating, fig-leaf-covered prodigals like me and like you. And you see why I say it's one big story. And that brings us hope. And that's the third lesson we learn from Genesis chapter 3, is that I have reason to hope. That's an insight in the middle. Think about this. In the middle of the worst moment in all of human history, hope is everywhere. Three reasons I can have hope. One, the promise of Christ. The promise of Christ. Look, you don't have to wait till you get to the New Testament to find hope in a Redeemer. He's right there in the garden. Notice verse 15. God is dishing out consequences, and look at what he says to the snake. He says, and you will cause hostility between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head, and you will strike his heel. And it's easy for us to read that and go, that's why we hate snakes, and that's why snakes hate us. But if you really look at it, there's something much deeper going on. Notice the first part of this verse, it's plural. It's talking about the offspring of Eve, that'd be us, and the offspring of Satan. It's talking about a plural thing. And then all of a sudden in the last line, he switches to a single personal pronoun. All of a sudden he switches to he and his. He will strike your head, snake, and you will strike at his heel. Who's he talking about? Who's the he? Jesus, the Redeemer. He's right there. What was broken in the garden is already being restored on the cross. And it's right there at the moment of our rebellion. Second reason we can have hope is the provision of grace. The provision of grace. Now I know here at Churchy People, we, love, we throw that word grace around all the time. We sing about it. We talk about it. We got all these definitions for grace you know, like the acrostic, G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. But I believe that the heart of grace shows up right here at the start of the story. And here it is. This is the heart of grace. God meeting needs that were caused by my sin and rebellion. That's grace. Let me say it again. God meeting needs that were caused by my sin and my rebellion. Look at verse 21. It says, And the Lord God made clothing from animal skins for Adam and his wife. Whose fault was it that they had to cover up? Was that God's fault they needed to cover up, or was it their fault? Right? They caused it. If I'm God, I'm like, get your own clothes. Make your own, yeah, good luck with the fig leaf. That's a great look, go for it. I hope it works when winter comes and you're cold, but that's not what God does. God provides for them what they need, and the need came from their own failure. And don't miss this, this is cool too. 
How do you get animal skins? How can you get the skin of an animal? What do you got to do? You got to slaughter the animal. You got to kill it. Right here, right here in the garden is the shedding of blood for the forgiveness of sins. And you'll see throughout the Old Testament this symbolic gesture of animal sacrifice, the shedding of blood for the remission of sins. It started right here. This is the very first animal sacrifice. This is the very first picture pointing ahead to hope, to the day that God himself will shed his own blood to cover our rebellion against him. And then finally, a third reason I can have hope even in the middle of this mess of brokenness is the protection of eternity. The protection of eternity. Remember, there were two important trees in the garden. The tree in the middle that contained the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. But there was another tree. It was called the tree of life, also known as the tree of eternal life. What happens to people when they eat from that tree? They have eternal life. And God is going to protect them from that tree. Look at verses 22 and 20 through 24. It says, Then the Lord God said, Humans have become like one of us. They know good and evil. We must keep them from eating some of the fruit from the tree of life, or they will live forever. So the Lord God forced Adam out of the Garden of Eden, and he placed an angel and a sword of fire, and this kept people from getting to the tree of life. And you're like, wait a minute, that don't sound like protection. That sounds like punishment. On the surface it does, but let me ask you this. What happens if you eat fruit from the tree of eternal life? You will live the problem is you will live forever in the state that you are in when you eat that fruit. If they could have gotten to that tree, and they would have, if they could, they would have eaten it, they would have had to have spent eternity separated from God. And so God protects the way to eternal life until he becomes the way to eternal life. See the protective love in that? So what does this mean for today? What is the practical application? I think it's simply this. In the middle of the worst moment of the worst day of my life, in the middle of the worst rebellion, when I am covered in apple juice and fig leaves and shame and hiding from God in the bushes, I have a God who comes looking for jacked up prodigals like me. I have a God who provides grace and protection and the promise of redemption. That's the big story. Look, I don't know the struggles you came in here with today. I don't know the questions you have about God and why he allowed the things to happen in your life. God knows I've got unanswered questions in my own journey. And I am very well aware that you're not going to walk out of here today with all those questions answered. My hope, my prayer is that you walk out of here today with just a little clearer understanding of God's love for you. That you begin to see God, his desire to connect with you, to fix what you've broken, and invite you 
to a full life as a part of his one big story. Would you pray with me? Wow, Jesus, I thank you for that. I'm so thankful that you are not a God who, when we break things, waits centuries and moves to a plan B. You are right there in the moment of our brokenness. You're not waiting for us to get our act together and to come out of the bushes and hiding in shame. You're asking us today, where are you? Where are you? Today is a day to come home. I don't know what your struggle is. I don't know what you've thought of God. But I know God is inviting you to come home to his love, to his purpose, to his one big story. We thank you, Jesus. Move among us right now. It's in your name we pray. Amen.